are in Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. Verse 1. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, truly help us to trust in, to believe in you and you alone, God. Truly let our hearts rest in hope in you, God. Lead us and guide us and direct us in these crazy days, Father God, to live and to represent you with all that we have and full love and devotion to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Proverbs chapter 30. We're going into the last section of the book of Proverbs. And in this last section, it's broken down into two portions. So each one of these chapters, chapter 30 and chapter 31, are two separate writings. And we meet some new characters in this book. So in this Proverbs chapter 30, we run into some difficulties. And there's a couple of different difficulties. We'll we'll talk about one just right here from the front. One of the hardest things to translate or or to consistently translate when we're talking about ancient language back into modern language is animals. That's one of the hardest things to translate because animals go instinct and we use different words for different things. And so it's, it's one of the hardest things to track up with and it's going to come into play especially as we go throughout our Bible because as, diff- as different people travel around different cultures, names change and what we call things change. Just to give an example, uh, a buffalo. You know what a buffalo is. Describe a buffalo to me. What is a buffalo? What do they look like? Huh? Yeah, they are a wild animal. And most of the time when we think about buffalo here in America, we think about the big old strong ox looking thing, got the hump in the back, fur, on his shoulders, and that's what we call a buffalo. Thing that they put on the wing commercial. Wild wing, buffalo, wild wing. But technically, that's not a buffalo. That's a bison. A bison. Yeah, technically that, that's a bison. But what happened was the Europeans, when they came, they didn't know what it was. And the only thing they knew to call it was a buffalo. The buffaloes, the animals with the long horns that look like they got braids parted down the middle, that's in what we call Africa. It's a big old ox looking thing, got a long horn that curves to the side. That's a buffalo. That's a buffalo. Uh Uh-huh. But what we call buffalo are bison. But because of the movement, the names got changed, and we just pick up on what they told us that it was. And it shows you just the, some of the confusion that can happen with animals like, that go on, and we run into some of that when we go throughout the Bible, and we can highlight, and we're going to run into a little bit of it today in this chapter 30. But we get in this chapter 30, Proverbs chapter 30, and this first verse said, the words of Agur, the son of Jakey, even the prophecy the man spake, Unto Ithio, even unto Ithio and Yukau. Now, this is the introduction to this section. 
Now, the problem with this introduction is that, well, a lot of problem that a lot of people have with this introduction is that all of the names mentioned in here, we have no idea who they are. Nobody could tell you and point out to you throughout all the biblical history who is an arguer. Who is he? Where does he come from? Where did he live? When did he live? We don't know. So a lot of people play with this portion and they think that this is an outside portion that some non-Israelite wrote and that Solomon or one of the scribes of Hezekiah attached it to the book of, to the book of Proverbs just because it was some deep saying. And that's the way most people read it. Now this, that's the way it could be read. That there was a guy named Argyle and he was the son of this guy named Jakey and he had this prophecy and he talked it on to these two people, Ithio and Yukal. Now, Ithio is a name that we run across in the book of Ezra. That's one name that we know. So we know that it is an Israelite name, but a lot of we can't identify these people. But when we read it, and if you read it in the Hebrew and look up these words, a, a strange and amazing thing happened. Because another way to read this is that these are not proper names. But this is a description of the book and what's going on. Now, there were argued there. If you just take the meaning of it, it means the collector. Somebody who brings things together. And what we see here in this book is this book of Proverbs is a collection of different sayings compacted together. So all that word argue mean is collector. So if we read the meaning of the word and don't read it as a name and we read through all that, that son Jakey, the word Jakey would be the wise one or the obedient one. And if we can read it and even the Ithio, because the question becomes, why does he repeat Ithio's name twice? Say Ithio, even unto Ithio. He don't have, normally when you rip, when you repeat something in the Hebrew, you you give an emphasis to it. Like why would he emphasize this guy Ithio? Now that word Ithio means God came near. Our God, yeah, God came near. Our God come near. In that word, Ukal could mean to be devoured. And so if you read it as if these are not names, but if we read it and we just translate it all the way out, this first verse, it opens up and it says something a little bit strange and amazing, something we have to meditate on and pray about. It could be read, the words of the collector, the son of the obedient one, even the prophecy, the man spake or declared, God came near. God came near to be devoured or to be de- or to devour. That's the way it can say it. Like, this is his prophecy that God came near. God came near to be devoured. And that opens up a ram to us. Like, could this really be what he's really trying to get at? And these strange sayings that they're not names, that this is his prophecy. That the prophecy he's declaring, the words that he got is that God came near. God came near to be devoured. Like, and we get this picture in there and it creates all these questions. Like, if this is what he's saying, when did God come near to be devoured? When did God come down to be consumed? Another way it could be saying. And if we think and we just allow the full Bible to speak, when Jesus steps on the scene, he makes some strange statements that the people of his day didn't understand. And he's asked them, he said, if you really want to know the truth and you really want to be my disciples, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any part with me. 
And people looked at him like he crazy. Like this man telling us to eat him and to consume him. And I see in this a reference back to this statement. The, the prophecy of this collector that he's declaring to us that God came near and God came near to be devoured. To be consumed, to be ate. And that's the words that Jesus said, that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, unless you devour me, you consume me, you have no part in me. And it's a wonder in this, and it seems to be a strange thing that what we see as names and what we translate as names reads out into this beautiful statement that pictures the Messiah so perfectly. And a lot of people look at it and say, well, that's just coincidence. And names just seem to be like that. And I think this is divinely inspired. And this is the real revelation or, or the real thing that he referred to. That's why he referred to his dark sayings as a prophecy. That this is the burden and this is the prophecy of this collector. And the prophecy is that God came near, God came near to be devoured. And when Jesus makes this statement, because it seems to be a strange statement, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any part for me. Like, why would he tell people that? And for them, they don't have any frame of reference for that. Because it's against the law to eat human flesh. That's unclean. Right, so why would he say that? And I think that, that what he's saying there ha- have reference back to what is collected here in the proverb. It's a picture that God came near. God came to be consumed. He came to be devoured. And if they would have seen and understood this, their minds would have been open and recognized what Jesus was saying. That I'm God that come near and I'm here to be consumed. I'm here to be devoured. I'm giving my life as an offering, as a sacrifice. And unless you partake of this sacrifice, you don't have any part with me. And I think this is the opening prophecy of this, this last chapter. Who he is and what he came to do. So you can't say you with me. You can't say you're a follower of me, my disciple, that all the blessings and, and the benefit that I have, you're not a part of that unless you do this. So basically, and the, only the people who partake of my flesh and drink of my blood, these are the only people who are part of my kingdom and the only people who are with me in my reign and in my life and all the blessings that I'm getting. Yeah, and then he gives us a picture coming from that in his uh the communion. He's saying, this is my body that was broken for you. So he's flashing forward to his sacrifice. So we come one with him in his sacrifice and we enter into communion with him through that sacrifice. We are the people who are eating his flesh and drinking his blood. You understand? Because his blood poured out for us, his flesh was broken for us. That's a picture of his sacrifice. And he's saying, this is the reason that I came. And unless you be a part of this, you don't have any part with me. You understand? In verse 2, he says, surely I am more brutish than any man and have not the understanding of a man. Now, this is a, seems to be a strange statement. Right? For this is a truth thing. I'm more brutish. That could be translated. I'm more stupid. I'm more like a cattle. I'm just a flesh than any man. And have not the understanding of man. So there's a, a natural peace to me. That does not exceed any other man. 
I'm just like any other man. And this is the words of this collector. And that there's a level of understanding that identifies man or make you a real man. It's like, I like that. And it's this, this level of humility and downputting that he put here that gives us a true picture of where true knowledge comes from. And it's all in this, we're going to keep going. It said, neither have I learned wisdom, nor have the knowledge of the holy. So nobody has instructed me in wisdom. He said, I, I never learned it. I have not been taught wisdom, nor have the knowledge of the holy. Now, this is a controversial one here because when we look back in and we look these words up, that word nor is not there. They added that to try to make it consistent with the, the beginning of it. So it could be better said, I have not been taught wisdom. I have the understand the knowledge of the holy. And that don't seem to make sense. Like if ain't nobody taught you, how do you have the knowledge of the holy? So that's why most of the people add that nor there, but it's not there. And what he's saying is, wisdom I got. I mean, I have not been taught. Nobody has instructed me. But knowledge of the holy I got, even though I'm stupid. Even though I'm less than a regular man, wisdom I have not been instructed with. Nobody trained me up, but I have knowledge of the holy. In verse 4, he go into why he got, how he get that. And through this series of questions, he said, who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? So who that went up into heaven? Who have got up and reached up into heaven? And the question is like, who has done that? And this is a reverence, reference back to Moses in Deuteronomy. He asks essential questions. He tells them, don't say who went up to get it for us and who came down. And the picture is, is that there's a knowledge of the holy that's so great and it's so transcendent. None of us can reach up to it and attain it. It's something that we just can't get by our own means. And then when Jesus steps on the scene, he makes these questions. It's like, hey, y'all don't know where I'm from. I come from above and I came down. And he gives this point, point and he, he presents himself as the answer to this question. What Moses asked, who ascended and who has descended? Paul asked the same question, who hath ascended and who hath descended? And it's this thing that go on over and over, over through the scripture of, of this one question, like who done went up to heaven and who done came down? Who is it that connects heaven and earth? Who can say that they have done that? And when Jesus steps on the scene, he tell you, hey, I was up there. And I done came down here. And he gives and he presents himself as the answer to this question. That I done been to heaven and I done came down. And what he's implying here, that nobody has ascended to the point where they can grasp the knowledge of the holy. Nobody that went up the, up to heaven and had a conversation with God to be instructed in the ways of wisdom. Who has done that? And the rhetorical question is, God, he's the only one that has done that. And he keep going down the same thing. Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? So who then took breath and held on to it? Who controlled the, 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 the winds of the earth? Like who hold them in their hand? Obvious question. Answer. God said, so who hath established the ends of the earth? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? What do you mean by that? This is a reference. I think it's Psalms 104 where it talks about God wraps the seas or he cloaks them in a garment. And this is a reference back to that. And he's showing his understanding of scripture, but he's saying who then took the oceans and wrapped them like they're a blanket? The question is God. Who then established the ends of the earth? Who told the earth 
where to stop, who told the waters, how far they can go and don't go no farther. These are the same questions God said to Job. Like, who, who the one control the seas and, and tell them to go this far and don't stop? And this is the picture that he's saying, and who controls all these things? Who truly comprehends and understands all these things? And the obvious answer is God. Then he asked his last question, which a lot of people take to be very strange. Say, what is his name? And what is his son's name, if thou can tell? So the one who ascended, the one who descended, the one who controlled the seas, the one who controlled the winds, the one who controls it all, what is his name? And that's the question that he leaves them here with. And this is a, a picture of, do you truly know knowledge? And it's a thing that to truly answer this question, what is his name? To this transcendent one, the only way you can get that knowledge is what? He reveals it. There's no searching we can do. There's no research that we can do. There's no mathematical equation that can figure these things out. No matter how long you meditate and contemplate, the only way you can reach the conclusion and truly know the name, the character, the personal revelation of who controls all these things is if he reveals it. And that's why he asked this question, what is his name? And what is his son's name, if you can tell? And this right here is a little off-putting to a lot of people. Because you think the answer to that is God is the only one that been up and down. God is the only one that controls the seas. God is the only one that controls the wind. And, and if we keep in the same vein, you're telling me God has a name. Not only does God have a name, God has a son. And this don't seem to jive. What a lot of people understand, because most people tell you, well, the Old Testament really don't talk about this Trinitarian thing in the revelation of Jesus as the Son of God. So what a lot of people would do with this verse is, they make the Son here plural. If you read a lot of them new versions, they will say, and what is his Son's name? Because the only way they can understand it is, he's talking about Israel. Uh, he's talking about all the obedient ones who follow him. Those are his sons. And can you identify those people? But it says it's just higher up there. What is his son's name? And it's something we have to wrestle with and let it sit there that God gives revelation. And he gives understanding of who he is. And this revelation that God has a son is not a new thing. It's something that he has always been revealing to his people. And those who truly know him know this. And it's the picture that this is something we can't get on our own searching and through our own research and through our own just contemplating and trying to figure things out. We want to send to this level of knowledge. It takes some revelation to get us there. And in verse 5, he, that's why he follows up with this. Every word of God is pure, pure, pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Because this is the understanding, this is the revelation of how do you get the knowledge of the holy. Can't over, you can't run up there and get it. You don't comprehend life enough to figure all this out. There is this God, he has a name, he has a son. And how do we know this? Because every word of God is pure, it's trustworthy. It is something that has been tried and revealed to be of great quality. Every word of God. 
So every time God speaks, every time God declares, that is the true foundation of truth. And he's saying he is a shield unto those who put their trust in him. So those who follow by this word, those who rely on this word, those who run to him for refuge, he protects them. He covers them. He, 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 he resides over them as a protector, as a barrier. He's a buckler is the old thing. He's a person of shield, something that you can carry about you. This is what God is, and this is the source of true knowledge. All true knowledge, all true understanding comes from God. And this is something we have to understand. So if there's mysteries in life that we don't grasp, we can't understand who knows them. God. And we have access to him through his revelation. And the only way that we can truly know anything is through revelation. Him revealing it to us. That's our place of trust and that's our place of refuge. And he end this section off with a warning. He said, add thou not unto his words. Least he reprove thee and thou be found a liar. So once revelation come forth, this is the true knowledge. And don't you go connecting to it. You allow revelation to be what it is. Because if you add to it, say God might reprove thee. He come down and question you. He come down to, to open up and to, to examine you. And it be demonstrated that you are a liar. And this is the warning that he gives. We don't add to the word of God. We, we, we don't have God's truth and. Like I said, and, and it's, it's an amazing thing. We, we'll talk about it in depth when we get there. If you read just the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, it demonstrates this. The, 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 the conversation between Eve and the serpent was a, a strange conversation. But the thing that makes it strange was neither one of them quoted what God said. Both of them either added or took away from his words, which allowed her to be deceived. Neither one of them said what God said. In the beginning of that sep- of that deception was an adding to or altering of the words of God. That's how the serpent started it. And Eve continued in that same vein. And she she couldn't get it straight. And this is the thing that we need to be cautious of in our own life. Anytime we have anything in our mind where we say, I know what God says, but we need to stop. You're in danger at that moment. If I understand what the Bible says, but that's one of the most dangerous things you can do. We don't add to his word and we don't feign ourselves to understand life to a greater degree than he can. So we trust in him and that's our shield. That's our protection. And we do not alter. We do not add. We do not subtract or anything to his word. God's word is true. And we need to let this be the foundational source of all our knowledge. Anything that don't match up with the Bible, we don't trust it. Anything that don't come from the Bible, we don't trust it. Could be true, could be false. I don't know. This is the only thing I know to be true. And this is our starting point for every other piece of knowledge. And that's the mindset that we got to have. We don't add to God's word. 
You understand? And this is the true source of knowledge. And we get here in, in verse 7. He, he switches and he gives this great and wise prayer here. This is a prayer that we probably need to incorporate in our lives. It said, two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. So he got two requests that he's asking. And we, the way it's worded is like he's asking this, these things of God. So two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. So don't withhold from me these two requests before I get up out of here. Verse 8 is the first one. So remove far from me vanity and lies. This is his first request. Take away from me vanity and lies. So the first thing he want God to do to him is separate him from all lies and all vanities. All of those fleeting things, those empty, those worthless things. It's like, take that out of my life. Yes. This is his prayer and this is his request. Take away from me vanity and lies. And if we just sit there and just allow that to sit and just see the weight of what he's saying there. Once he's asking for protection from around him, people lying to him, him being deceived, him being led astray. One, he's asking for protection from his personal pursuits. When he talks about take away from me vanity, like basically don't allow me to waste my time. Don't allow me to go in pursuit of those things that are worthless. Don't allow me to, to, to spend my time on things that do not add value. This is a very wise prayer. It is also a very personal prayer because he's asking to be purged here. And like take away from me all vanity and lies. So the only way to get from me all vanity and all lies is to get it what? Out of me too. So you protect me from the liars who can deceive me to lead me astray. And you protect me from the liar I am. Keep me from deceiving and leading astray. And this is a very wise prayer that he has. Remove from me, far from me, all vanity, all lies. In this second part, in the second half of verse 8, is his second request. Say, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. That's a very wise prayer. Don't give me poverty, so don't allow me to be poor. Or don't put me in a place where I don't have anything. Then he said, don't give me riches. Don't allow me to be filled with abundance. He's saying, feed me with food that is convenient for me. And that means give me just enough. Feed, give me what I need. Give me enough to sustain me. That's his prayer. That's a very powerful and wise prayer to come to think about. So don't allow me to be poor. Don't allow me to be rich. Give me just what I need. Give me this day my daily bread is what he's praying here. Give me what I need. And he's going to explain to you why in verse 9. Say, at least I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? At least I be poor and still and take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So the reason I don't want to be poor is because I might enter into temptation and begin to steal. And I don't want to be rich is the first part he, he goes because I might be full. So I get to a place of self-satisfaction and I forget about you. I deny you. I, I don't rely on you. And this is a thing we see throughout scripture. The whole time through the Exodus, God was warning his people. When you enter into the land, don't forget the Lord your God. 
when you, you get in your inheritance, don't forget the Lord your God. And it's always seemed strange to me. You're like, you God, you open up the seeds to them. They done seen all these miraculous things that you have done. You done let bread grow out of grass just overnight. Like you done done some amazing, how could they forget that? And the temptation is, is once you get to a place of satisfaction, the hunger and the desire to pursue God, it wanes. And Paul makes the same statement in Timothy. He say, he that, she that is a widow indeed continues all night in prayer. Like there's a portion where you're truly a widow. You don't have anybody. You don't got a son. You don't got a husband. You have no means of provision. It's like that person, they pray all the time. And if we examine our lives, we can see the same thing. There are times when we're going through and things are bad and you can't stop us from praying. And we pray with fervency. We, we're crying and, and, it's, and it's gone. But once those prayers are answered and we get to a place of stability in our life, uh, you, you got to re- remember to pray. Like, oh, Lord, I ain't even prayed today. I don't remember last time. Oh, thank you, Jesus. And we get these type of prayers. And it's because pleasure and success are deceptive. And that's the danger of them. And that's something that we're not warned about too often in our day and culture. And we see, like, don't get down in people in poverty and that's where, 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 where crime come from and that's where all the sin, so we need to elevate them out of poverty and that's going to help them. But no, leisure and, and affluence are deceptive as well because it produces pride. And that's what he's praying against here. Like, don't let me get to a place where I have so much where I think I don't need you. Go ahead. Uh-huh. And you get to a place where you think you don't need him. And, and it, like I said, it is something we, if you just watch your life and watch your own prayer life, you can see it. The times where you had the least, the times where things was the roughest, and you didn't know your way, those are the times you prayed the hardest. Those are the times you prayed the strongest. And But once those prayers answered, once you got the job, uh, the, once the, the situation came down, those prayers slow down. And it is, it's a little thing. But I can guarantee you, when I was around here early and, and trying to, to get a job and, and make ends meet and while I was eating, Double stack 99 cents because I found a dollar in the glove department that I forgot for there and I'm having to pray. Like, do I get gas with these two dollars or do I get something to eat? Them some praying times. I'm talking about some super praying time. The whole day. <laughs> That's all you pray about. Everything. God, Jesus. Let them drop some extra fries in the bag in the name of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and those put us on those times but once you get out of those times he's back and that's what he's praying against he's like don't let me get to that place and he go to the other one and he makes this very strange statement said, at least I'll be poor and still go ahead mm-hmm. uh-huh yeah I agree but you don't continue to say pray the same thing you continue to go after him and it's this level of conversation and just the same thing, like I said, we, we, we got children. You see those times, especially with the teenagers, where they can pop up in your room and lay on your bed and do all that. Why? Because they want something. And then once you give them that something, 
they off to their room and you have to find them and see, like, <laughs> are you still alive in here? Like, what's going on? And you have to search out. And it ain't that you want them to come asking for you something. You just want to be around them. And you want that same pop up and prop and watch TV with me for a couple minutes like you did yesterday. You don't have to ask for anything. Still show me that you care. And show me that we can have a relationship apart from me just providing your needs. And that's where it can transition to. So it becomes to a, a pace of appreciation and thankfulness. Because that's how you will want your children to be with you. You will want them to pop up and just to say, I won't understand how you're doing today, mom. I just want to spend some time with you. I don't want nothing. Everything good. I thank you for what you did yesterday. I just want to be with you. And that not be a strange thing. And that's the same way it should be with us with God. There should be times when we just be with him and we commune with him and we just enjoy the fact that we have a relationship with him and we have access to him. And it's just this continual thing. But it also comes from the right perspective because every day you do need him. You might not need him to give you some money. You might not need him to give you some food. You might not need him to not let your tire blow out into a payday. Because <laughs> but you you need him to sustain you. You need him to keep you. You need him to, to love you. And all these other things that go on in us that we con- consistently need him for. So just like our parents tell us coming up, don't ever say you're bored because there's always something to do. And don't ever say you ain't got nothing to pray about because there's always something you need. And you always, because without him, you can do what? Nothing. And then, this, like I say, you go to the opposite side in verse 9, and he makes this statement that gives us insight into the fourth commandment. He said, at least I be poor and still, and take the name of the Lord thy God, my God, in vain. Take the name of my God in vain. So he's saying, if, if I'm poor, I might be tempted to steal. And out there stealing, I'm taking your name in vain. And he gives us this this understanding of taking the name Lord in vain mean being more than just saying something ill about God or using God's name in a useless way. To him, it's being a bad representative. So if I'm connected to you and if I'm saying that I love you and we got a relationship, but I'm out here wild and I'm out here stealing, I'm taking the name of the Lord in vain. And I'm violating the fourth commandment because I'm not a, a, a proper ambassador of your name. I'm doing conduct not becoming of a kingdom representative. And that's what he means here by not taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. So when we see people who, who, who claim they're a Christian, but they live in a crazy lifestyle and they caught up with some stuff, you can correct them and say, hey, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. We ain't got to wait till they cursing and saying foul stuff. Are they just using Jesus as a filler? Like, no, it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. The words that come out of our mouths, the way that we live, taking the name of the Lord means we, we represent him. We got his name marked on us. And if we live in a way that don't represent their name, we taking his name in vain. You, you understand that? So taking the name of the Lord in vain is how we represent him when we're out in public, when we're in the midst of the people who don't know him. Verse 10, say, accuse not a servant unto his master, lest he's cursed thee, and thou be found guilty. So he's giving us this one little punch exhortation. So if you got a servant, don't go to his masters making accusation. And it's the idea of you slandering him. 
you, 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 you speaking against him to his master. And he's saying the reason is, it's at least he cursed thee and thou be found guilty. And it's the picture of you seeing somebody and you jumping in their business. So you going to their boss to slander them. Then they come to their boss and curse you and speak against you. But the boss side with his servant. And you be put to shame. For being a slanderer. For being off-putting. And it's just this warning of don't be so quick to intermeddle and bring accusations against people. Don't do that. Because here it's not a blanket prohibition because he gives us the warning. Least he. So this is the thing that you if you run in and bring an accusation against somebody to their master, it's possible for them to come to the master and speak evil of you and the master side with them. So be cautious. Don't just go run and making accusations against people. And it's just it's an employee thing. And, and, and even with us, if we, we amplify this thing about us and other people to God, don't be quick. Don't be quick to just run through. And, and, and slander people to God. And how do we do that? We judge people's motives. We say she this or she that or she tried to do this. And we don't know. It's just because we felt a certain way. Saying I walked by and I saw you in public. And you didn't speak when I waved. No, I'm in mad. She acting funny when she ain't in church. She out there doing all that other stuff. So you could not have seen me. That's a real possibility. And it's, it would be improper for me to go to God and just write you off as being she fake. She a hypocrite, God. She ain't real. She claimed like she like us. She really don't like her because she ain't way. Like, don't do that. Don't be so quick to rush and make accusations about people. Because it's possible that you're wrong. And when they come up and, and, and bring the accusation against you based on what you're saying, you'll be the one that found get there. You'll be the wrong one in the wrong. We understand that. That's why Jesus tells the same thing. Make righteous judgment. Verse 11. He's talking about a couple of generations here. And as we get to these dark sands and they get a little heavy coming down where we have to think about them. Said there is a generation that cursed their father and doth not bless their mother. Saying this is a generation, a group. Uh, 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 identification of a people say they curse their father and doth not bless their mother and here he's given a picture of a stubborn group of people who have no respect for their parents and those who go before that show no respect for their ancestors they speak bad about their father and they don't have nothing good to say about their mother and it's just the idea of stubbornness and rejecting what has gone before he said there's a generation like that that have no respect for their elders and show no reverence to those who have gone before. They ain't got nothing but evil to say about them and they don't show no love or have nothing good to say about them. Verse 12, there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, yet is not washed from their sins. This is a category. This is a group. This is a people. So one group has no respect. They show no reverence for what has gone before. Another group, he's saying, they're pure in their own eyes. So when they think about themselves, they perceive themselves as being good, pure, nothing evil or wrong or defiling them. So yet they're not washed from their sins. They're not have reached to a place where they've been purged, where they have been sanctified, where they have been clean. But they see themselves as pure. He said, this is a generation. And this is something 
all both of these things you find in every age. And it shows us the cycle of life and the cycle of depravity and the cycle of sin that there's nothing new. Like we see now, these children are stubborn, they bad, they don't have any respect for authority. And, and it, we say that about our children that are coming up. But if we flash back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the parents then, they were saying the same thing about us. These children out there, they bad, they don't care, they don't have any respect for authority, they don't care nothing about law, they don't know, how, and it's the same thing. And what he's saying here way back, in Bible times, as people say, he's saying the same thing. Like, hey, is, there's a generation, a group out there, they don't care about authority. They speak evil of their father. They have nothing good to say about their mother. And there's this idea of each generation, there's a rebellion and there's a sin. And there's this cycle of sin. And he go on. These ones that appear in their own eyes. We have the same thing today. Jesus dealt with the same thing in his day. He, he talked to the Pharisees like, y'all are whitewashed tombs. What well, to say? You look good, and you float your flaunt yourself around like you're pure, but inside you evil. You full of dead man bone. And we have the same thing today. You got folks. Yes, I'm saved. I'm this and I'm that, and I'm going. I'm going saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. But they live all type of foolishness. But you see them and you talk to them. Now I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But you evil. And this is a cycle of sin. And these generations go on and on. And he identify another generation. So there's a generation. Oh, how lofty are their eyes. And their eyelids are lifted up. So there's a pride generation. Who who put themselves above everybody. That's what he means by how lofty are their eyes. They hold their head up to where they see above everybody. And they identify themselves as being so great. So how lofty are their eyes? Their eyelids are lifted up. So there's a generation of people, prideful people, who cannot be corrected, who think they are above and beyond everybody else. Do we have a generation like that around today? Yes, we do. And he gives us another one. Said so there's a generation whose teeth are as swords and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. This is, now he goes and ends with this last generation which is a greedy generation, an oppressive generation. And it's like their teeth are as swords and their jaw teeth as knives. That's a descriptive way of saying they destroy and they consume. And what do they destroy and they consume? They consume the needy. They consume the poor. They consume those who have not. They consume those who they view as left then. And if we just picture, put all these together, we can see descriptors of these in each and every generation, each and every stage. And this is a picture of not a righteous generation. And if you find a, a group of people who fall within these categories, these are not the righteous. Those who have no respect for parents and authority. Those who, 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 who pro present themselves as being pure, but on the inside, they're really full of evil. Those who are prideful and those who consume, terrorize, oppress the poor. Like that's not a righteous generation. That's, that's a descriptive of, of evil. And it is something that we cannot attach Christian to that. And no matter what age it comes in, no matter what package it comes in, we cannot attach Christian to that. Verse 15, and he go into these numbered proverbs here. 
said there, I mean 15, the horse leech hath two daughters crying, give, give. So the horse leech has two daughters and it said they're crying, give, give. That's all they do. The horse leech is just like what it sounds. It's a leech that, that connect itself. And they call it a horse leech because from what I can understand in most times in that region, Horses get caught with them more than anything because they lived in the drinking water. And they can, when the horse has been down to drink and they crawl up in the nostril of a, the horse and attach itself and leech on him. And the picture that he's given with is this leech snatches on and his two daughters seems to be a picture of how it's made because it has two suction points. One is just to grip in and to hold that makes it impossible to remove or hard to remove. And the other one is to sink in and to draw your blood. And all they're doing is crying give. They're, they're never satisfied. And that leech can live and attach itself to his host until the host has nothing else to give. Because all they are is consuming. And so he's putting this at the front of this proverb because he's transitioning to talking about the greedy. So this horse leech has two daughters crying give, give. Verse 15 said there are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things say not. It is enough. So he got in these proverbs and he's going to do this a lot. And you're going to see it a lot in scripture where he gives a number, then adds a number for emphasis. Like there's three, yea, four. There's six, yea, seven. And it's this idea of putting emphasis on it, on this final one. So he got these four things that never satisfied. that say it's not enough. Said the grave. The barren womb, the earth that is not filled with water, and the fire say it not. It is enough. So he put these, and these are things we're supposed to think about and meditate on to try to be instructed by. So the grave, it never has enough. And this is the idea that the grave itself gains its definition from receiving the body. You can never bury too many people. It's the idea that he's saying here. As long as there is a grave, there will be bodies being buried. As long as there is death, there will be a grave. And it will never get to a point where the grave and the ground will stop saying put people in here. It's never satisfied. It exists for the purpose of receiving those things. In the barren womb, this is something that longs, has a purpose, want to fulfill that purpose, but cannot. And it's to show this disconnection between desire and ability. It's like it's never satisfied. So when you, if you have desire and an inability to fulfill that thing, your purpose is connected to this thing, but you cannot fulfill it, you will never be satisfied. And that's the longing where you never reach a place of contentment. The earth is not filled with water. So the dry land, the earth needs the water to release this full potential. So when it's deprived of something that is need, it's never satisfied. And it gives us these pictures, and we're supposed to think about these and learn. And we see life in that. If we have a person deprived of the things they need, there's discontentment in there. You cannot find contentment when you're robbed of the, that which is necessary for you to fulfill your purpose. If you have purpose and you want to fulfill it, but you can't, there is discontentment in that. And when you get your full definition off of things, you will never get to a place where you're tired of it. And it gives us this last one. 
And it said, the fire that saith not, it is enough. The fire consumes. That's how it exists. Once it stops consuming, it ceases to be a fire. And he gives us these pictures and we think about these. We see different types of people in each one of these pictures and it shows us the dissatisfied and it can also gives us a picture of contemplation for ourselves. If you exist solely to consume, you'll never be satisfied. If you won't allow yourself to be filled with the things that are necessary, you'll never be satisfied. If you have desire but cannot accomplish purpose, you'll never be satisfied. And if you get your definition off something, if there's a thing that defines you and, and, and gives you your existence, you'll never be satisfied. Because you will always need that thing. And this is a warning to us for con- contentment. In verse 17, it says, The eye that mocketh his father, this is another punction, on a warning, exhortation. The eye that mocks it at his father, and despise to obey his mother. The ravens of the valley shall p- pick it out. And the young eagle shall eat it. That's nasty. It was talking about the disobedient child. So the one that mocks his father. That speak evil towards his father. That don't treat his father with respect. And despise to obey his mother. When the mother tell him to do something. There's a, there's a, a hatred that comes. And there's, 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 there's this rebellion that rises within their heart. He's saying that child. They going to die a very bad death. The ravens of the field going to take their eyes and pick it out. The eagles, which could be translated as vultures. It's a large bird of prey. That's all we know that it is. Going to eat their flesh. So ravens going to pluck it out and the vultures or the eagles going to eat it. And this is the, the, the warning against rebellion towards your parents. Because what a lot of people don't realize is in Moses' law, rebellion was a death sentence. To, to be a disobedient child, a rebellious and disrespectful child, they can bring you to the court and you get stoned. That's deep. That show you how deep God takes obeying our parents. Verse 18, he gives us another one of these number prophecies. There are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yea, four which I know not. So he's going to give us some things that are so amazing, he don't understand them. And it's something that we can be instructed by. Verse 19 says, the way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of the ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. He said, these are four things that are too wonderful. They're amazing. I don't completely comprehend them. I, I don't understand them. And he's saying, you see the eagle in the air and the way it glides and the way it moves. It's like, that's amazing. I don't understand that. When I was reading this or a little before, I was at work one day. And there was this super large, it was either a falcon or a crow. We were, I really couldn't tell because of how high it was. And it was just moving through the air. Did not flap his wing once. It's just going. And he sit there, looked at it. And one of the students took time to take notice of it. And he asked the question, like, how is it doing that? Because we're sitting there and we just watch. It did not flap its wing once. It's just moving. And it's just continuing. It's swirling and it's circling all around. It's just, it's just riding and enjoying itself. Like, whoa, how? And that's the question. Like, how is it doing that? I tell you, son, I really don't understand. I don't know. They can glide like that. I, 
And what he's saying is these are things that, that are too wonderful for me. I, I don't understand it. And another thing that all these have in common when you think about it is they have the ability to move and move seamlessly, uh, move graciously where there is no path. There's no path in the air that's been charted out for the eagle, but he can navigate and he can move smoothly. There's no path charted out in the in the sea for the ships, but it can move and it can go. The serpent moving upon a rock. There is no path charted out. And it seems like this is something that you should not be able to go through and be able to through. do. The rock, the serpent don't have any legs. How in the world do he just slide and move upon all those crags and go up and down mountains? And, and how does he do that? And it's a place that he has the ability to navigate in a place where there is no path. And where it seems like he should not be able to go, he can go there. And he's saying, this is amazement. I don't completely comprehend this. How does this work? Then he gives us an example of that in verse 20. And it's something to pause on. He says, such is. So just like these things, and and they're amazing in their movement. In verse 20, this is the way of an adulterous woman. Now, hold on, what do you mean by that? Like, they're amazing, and I don't understand it. I can't comprehend it. Says she eat it, she wipeth her mouth, and said, I have done no wickedness. Like, this is something that's amazing. I can't understand it. And there's this sense of, you think about it, I I make this statement a lot of times dealing with people. You can't make sense out of nonsense. And you can't rationalize the unreason. When there is no reason towards it, you can't make it make sense. And what he's given here is there's no path charted for the adulterous woman. The way she going and what she's doing is been clearly marked off, marked off and prohibited. But she can move and navigate through that with ease. And don't see no wrong in her doing. She eat, she satisfies that. She eat it, she wipe it her mouth. Say, I have done nothing wrong. She go in her way and can't see the evil of her way. He's like, I don't understand that. This is too wonderful for me. This is like the eagle floating in the air. I see it. I know that it's happening. But I just don't get it. How can she live the way that she's living and not see anything wrong in what she's doing? No consciousness whatsoever. Like I said, she eat, wipe her mouth. Like, oh, it's just a normal day. It's like, this is too wonderful for me. And it's something for us to contemplate. Like, oh, we got errors in our life. That just don't make no sense. Like, how could you? Hmm? And he's saying, it's something too wonderful for me. Verse 21. And he go. These numbers again, it said four things, for three things, the earth is disquieted. What do you mean by that? For three things, the earth is, is knocked off its rock. It creates an earthquake. These, for these things, the earth can't sit still. And it said for four things, the earth, it can't bear it. The earth can't hold these things. They give us three things. What are they? It said a servant when he reigns, a fool when he is filled with meat, verse 23, an odious woman when she is married, and a handmaid that is heir to her mistress. Like these four things, the earth can't stand them. They knock the earth out of order. So a servant, when he reigns, it's the idea of somebody who's been oppressed, somebody who's been less than, then he get into a position of authority. Like this is, like the earth can't stand this. And if you think about it, you can get the picture. Uh, we didn't all work with somebody like that. They were cool as a coworker. Then they become a supervisor. Can't nobody talk to them. <laughs> I'm saying everything is they they writing everybody up and they want to get down on everybody. Like, dude, just yesterday you were doing all the same stuff. 
Hold on, now it's illegal and you all about policy and you follow all the rules. Like, no, I had to wake you up yesterday before you got promoted. <laughs> I saw you stealing them cookies. But <laughs> well, now you elevated, you a CSM, you getting on everybody. <laughs> you know what he's saying? The earth can't bear this thing. And it gives us a picture of when things are, are not in, in the right perspective. And he's saying, a fool when he is filled with meat. So if you take a food and you satisfy him, like that's a dangerous thing. The earth can't stand that. And you get warned about these fools all the time and the prosperity of a fool and how dangerous that is. And that's what he's saying. Like the earth can't bear that up. Then he goes, say, an odious woman. What do you mean by odious woman? It's a woman who loves to fight. A woman who's always, he just she always got to stir something up. Like if you get this odious woman, this, this aggressive woman, this, this violent woman, and you allow her to get to a place of status, of marriage. It's like the earth can't stand that. Like this going to knock the earth off its axis. <laughs> and basically he's giving us a comedic way of showing that some things should not be, but they are. And the last one, he said, a handmaid that is heir to her mistress. And this is a woman who was a servant to a mistress. But now she get to a place where she's the dominant. Where, where, where the things that belong, the, the, the tables didn't turn. Where she owns the estate now. It's like the earth ain't gonna bear this. Is, and that's what he's giving us here. And what he's giving us a comedic way of saying it. And it's like, this gonna knock the earth off its axis. Like, it's gonna fall. Earth can't stand if these things happen. If you let a man who's been a servant all his life become a dominant man, this whole thing ain't gonna go wrong. If you got a violent, crazy woman and you allow her to get married, things going to be crazy. If you get a handmaid and you allow her to rule over her mistress, things going to be crazy. Sarah had it. Once Hagar got the only child and now my son finna run the house, Sarah had to get up out of there. And you can just only imagine what was going on in that, in that little family there. How Hagar was walking around. I'm like, oh, you, you need me to do what? Don't you know my son finna own all this? <laughs> and another, he gives another prophecy. I mean, another numbered saying. Verse 24, there are four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding wise. So there's four small things. Four things that, 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 that seems to be small and insignificant, but he said they are seeding wise. And in doing this, if we think about these things, it's going to give us a deeper, deeper picture of what wisdom is. Because he's saying these things are wise. Verse 25 said, the ants are people not strong, yet they, they, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. He gives us the one, the ant. So they're small. He said they are people not strong. They don't have a lot of strength. But they have the ability to prepare. And the way he used prepare is not all you. It's, it's to stand their they food upright. It's to put it in the proper position. Like, so they have the ability to get everything aligned and in the proper position in the harvest time without any strength. And it gives us a picture of here where wisdom puts you in a position where you can exceed your limitations. There are people not strong. So they do some things they should not be able to do. And they have the ability to pull off tasks that they should not be able to pull off because of wisdom. So there are people not strong, but they can set their food up. 
They prepare their food in, in, in the harvest. And it says, it just at work just the other day. Just thinking about these, these proverbs coming to life. And we were seeing it. We was outside on wreck. And these, these ants, they picked up this bug. I don't know what kind of bug it was because you could barely see it because the ants was everywhere. And they was toting them. They were carrying them off. They, they, I guess they were finna get them ready. It's the summertime. They, <laughs> they preparing their food. And we just, they, I was just sitting there looking at it. And one of his boys walked up and he saw me looking at it. And, we, and he sat there and looked at it with me. And he asked a very observant question. Like, how they do that? When you see them little bit of micro things, they got this big old bug and they told him he off. He ain't no hope for him. It's over with. And I'm like, well, man, you know, they work together. And the kid asked me a question, like, well, what would life be like if we all worked together? I said, boy, you're asking a dangerous question. <laughs> but he got that observation just through me taking time to look at ants and watching them. And that's the thing that he's calling us to now. It's something you can learn. They're small. They should not have the ability to do what they do. But they're wise. So they can pull some stuff off that their strength don't give them the right to do. And this is a picture of wisdom. And all of these he's going. These are things that are small. We're in Proverbs 30, verse 26. Nah, man. That's good. Verse 26, he said, the, the conies are but a feeble folk, yet make there their houses in the rocks. So the conies are but but a feeble folk. Now, this is one of them strains. I told you about the animals thing. One of the hardest things to translate. Basically, best we can understand it is a little mountain-like rabbit type little thing that lives up in the mountains. And said, they're being small. They're little small little things. It's like little rabbits. But they live in, in mountains. And what they have the ability to do is they can take small little crevices and, and, and collect rocks together to create a house inside the mountain. They're just a little bit of rabbit, a little small thing. But they live in the mountains. And they can collect and make houses in the mountains. And the point where they otherwise have no means of protecting themselves because of their small stature and nothing can get them, but they can build them a place of defense where their predators can't go. And he's saying this is an example of wisdom. And it gives us a picture of wisdom when properly applied gives us the ability to exceed our limitations. They shouldn't be able to do what they do if you watch them like a little bit of thing, but they can put themselves in a position where they're protected and they cannot be hurt because they can pull off something that their predators can't pull off. Verse 27 said, the locusts have no king, yet they go forth all of them by bands. So this is the locusts. They move in swarms without anybody to get them together, without anybody to say, hey, yeah, we finna go. We're going to go through Sudan. We're going to stop by Ethiopia. You know what I'm saying? And we might circle back up and go South Sudan. They don't have nobody to map all that out. But they can move as a swarm through all of that and eat and destroy as a group. They have no king. But they have the ability to work together and move as a team. And it's like wisdom is what gives them the ability to do that. Now this is a deep saying and it's something for us to be instructed by. 
Because one of the things that a lot of people can't fathom on this earth is a mutual respect amongst people. Somebody always got to be in charge. Somebody always got to be the head. Somebody always got to be the man. Because we can't conceive of a unified work and a mutual respect getting accomplished. But the picture would he's getting here if we learn from the locusts that wisdom can allow you to pull it off. Because they can do it. They should not be able to move. Like you should see the swarm splitting. You should see them getting, but they don't. They continually move. And they can move across great miles and maintain unity without one leader. But we can't follow a great leader and maintain unity. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, and what he's saying, they can do this by king, but these are examples of what he's saying of wisdom. Of people being able to work together, move together, without a dominant leader. Verse 28 said, a spider taketh hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. So this is one, it wanted debated. If you got some of them new versions, it might say, uh, um, how they do it? They, they, they call this a, a lizard. It's because they don't clearly know exactly what the animal was. We got the spider. They they say it's a lizard. But I I, I actually think the King James writer got it right on this one when they said the spider taketh hold with their hands and is in king's places. And it's the idea of he giving the the, the spider as an example of wisdom. And you see the difference between this one. Because the first three he told you, they did, they are this, yet they can do this. They are this, yet they can do this. And this one he's saying, this is what they do and this is what they do. So he, he, he broke from his normal expression. And so what a lot of people do with this is to try to make it fit in the mold of those first three. So that's why they change it to wisdom. And I mean, they change it to lizard. And they said the lizard can be captured by hand, yet it is in the king's palace. But I think it, the, the spider taketh hold with his hand. And it's the idea of, you think about a spider, something that small. It has the ability to capture prey with what? With the hands. What do they move with? The hands. But yet and still they can catch prey with the hands. And there's this wisdom and there's this intricacy about their movements where they can utilize the same thing for two different purposes and still get the job done and not be defeated. Just imagine yourself trying to grab somebody, but you don't have any arms. Only thing you have is your legs. That'll be a tough task for you to pull off because it's going to take your legs for you to catch up with them. But once you catch up with them, how are you going to grab them? Because you got to get off your legs to grab them if that's all you got. And what he's saying, they have the ability and the wisdom to put themselves in a position where they can utilize multiple things. I mean, one thing in multiple ways and still be able to pull off their task. And you can find them as small as they are, as vulnerable as they are, they can make it all the way into the king's palace. Everywhere you go in every great place, they hire people and they pay people. And one of their jobs is they have to go around and getting rid of what? Them cobwebs and spider webs. They find themselves everywhere. They make it every, every single place. Pulled out old armor all day. You know what was in that thing? 
on the gas in it, on the oil in it, but spiders was up. <laughs> they made their way up. They can get there. And they know how to use their, their, their microness and their smallness to be in the greatest of places. And they know how to use their wisdom to be able to utilize single things for multiple different purposes. And this is an example of wisdom, something that we can need to take notice of and learn from. And it gives us a picture of wisdom. Well, wisdom allows you to exceed your limitations and wisdom allows you to utilize what you have to accomplish a task and it allows you to move in places that you otherwise are not wanted. And this is what wisdom can let us do. Verse 29 gives us another number proverb said there be three things which go well. Yea, four are comely in going. So these are things that, that move about with a boast about them. They move about with confidence that when they walk, they walk in a manner that lets you know that they're in charge. Like these are four things that we learn from. Say a lion, which is stronger than amongst beasts and turneth them out away for any. So a lion, he's saying when a lion go out, he walk. You can't make it turn it away. You can't make it turn away because in the mind of a lion, he's the strongest and there is no predator for him. Ain't no predator for a lion. So he walking, if he hear a twig break, he's not going to freeze. He keep walking. If he laying down chilling in the middle of the valley and he hear some ruffling in the trees, he's not finna jump up. Say, he go well. Why? Because he, he's, he's the strongest amongst beasts. He don't perceive any other thing as being a predator. Like I said, you break a stick and a bird up there, he's going to fly away. And even in, the, in your house, or if you got the regular cat that's supposed to be in the same family as a lion, you pull up in the driveway and see them, it get on and, and, and it get alert. Like, what I need to do? Is it coming over here? It's not coming over here. And you get some of them bold ones that'll test you and you, they'll sit there till you walk all the way up there. Then they run away. Like, the lion, you, it ain't gonna do that. So they go calmly in their well. They go, they walk around with a confidence because they don't see no predator. Verse 31, say a greyhound, a he-goat, and a king against whom there is no rising up. Now that greyhound is a reference for one we don't exactly know what it is. Because the word, all it means is one who high and thin at the waist. That's why they translate it as a, a greyhound, because of the way they built. The waist is very small, and it comes up like that. So the best we can understand is this was some type of super quick animal that can move with speed. This he goat that he's referring to would be a mountain goat. He has the ability to move around and to walk around on the mountains and that's his place. And he's showing us a picture that these things, because of what they have, it gives them a confidence that allow them to move in a manner that is not through intimidation, that's not with fear. Because that greyhound or whatever that his speed gives it his confidence. This he goat, a mountain goat, is his agility and ability to move around the mountains the way it can. That gives it, it confidence. You got little things with hoof feet, but it can walk, walk around and be agile walking on rocks and, and on the mountains. And the last one, he said, a king against whom there is no rising up or a king whose army is in subjection to him. Like he go, he walks with a confidence. A king that has a full armory and know everything in the lines with him. 
he walks around with a confidence. It's like the old, old dude over there in North Korea. When you see him, I don't know what's wrong with him now. He's been disappeared for a minute. But when you do see him, he's standing there with an air and a confidence and all foolish. Like you talk trash to the whole world. Threaten everybody. But when he moves, he moves stately. And he moves in a manner that he has full confidence that ain't nobody finna touch him. Why? Because his whole nation is in subjection to him. And when you see him moving with that big old army and they parading their tanks and missiles down the street, this is a display to him of my power. Everybody, this are my people, this is my power, what gives him a boost of confidence. Ain't no explaining himself to people. Ain't no moving with, I'm saying, doing press interviews with glass all around. We don't do none of that. Because this is a king against who, then this is the picture what he's giving us. Of These are four things that are commonly in their going. And the idea is for us to take these things and to think about them and to meditate on them and to learn and be instructed with wisdom. And if we want to be confident and if we want to move through life with a grace and with a thing, we, we, we think upon these things and we learn from the lion. Like, why do the lion move? Because there's no predator for him. And if we get to a place where we put ourselves in a position where we rob ourselves of enemies. We rob ourselves and we get in a place of confidence where we can move in the clefts of the rocks. And there's a grace about our navigation that gives us the ability to go. Now, the only place for us to truly do this, because early in the proverb, we learned that when a man ways please the Lord, he makes what? Even his enemies to be at peace with him. So if I really want to go calmly, I walk with God. And he talked about that the grace that comes to us from God and we can move in the cleft of the rocks because Christ himself is our rock. And so we can be like that mountain goat. And, it, and it's all these things that we can learn and we can be like that king who there is no rising up if we are a king in the kingdom of God because there ain't no revolt in this kingdom. There's no competition in this kingdom. We all are on one unity and this gives us the grace in our going. And is like I said, these are pretty dark and heavy sands for us to contemplate on and to learn from. And he goes on and, and, and get ready to wrap this thing up. In verse 32, he said, if thou hast done foolishly in lifting up thyself, or if thou hast thought evil, lay thy hand upon thy mouth. So this is a dumb thing that you have done. Like If you've done this, what's the dumb thing that you could have done that I need to be warned of in lifting up yourself? So if you got into a place where you put yourself up as somebody, and this is a throwback all the way to where we started at, when he talked about his description of himself and the knowledge that he has, and he, he started from this low position of, I don't know anything, and I need to be, I have not been instructed, but I got the knowledge of the holy. And he talked about this evil generation that, that parades themselves about, and, and that are lofty in their eyes and he comes to this last little thing. So if you have done foolishly, so this is the dumb thing you could have done and put lifting yourself up. If you elevated yourself, if you put yourself in a prideful position, what you need to do is put your hand upon your mouth. And it is this. 
it's, it's an amazing saying. And it's somewhat disrespectful. Just think about it. Like if you was in a conversation and you explained it to somebody something you did. As soon as you told them what they did, they tell you, shut up. You're like, no, no, shut up. <laughs> and you're trying to explain. But once they heard the first statement of what you've done, they shut you off. They're like, shut up. And that's the picture that I get here. It's like, if you have done foolishly in lifting up yourself, like if you thought evil, what you need to do, shut up. Don't say any other thing. Hide your mouth from speaking. Don't allow words to come out. Hide your mouth from speaking. Because you're a fool. And we went all the way back to where is the true source of knowledge? The word of God. And it is pure. It's the only trustworthy thing. And if you're a fool and if you lifted yourself up, if you elevate yourself, if you put yourself in a prideful position, what you have done is put yourself in opposition to the word of God. The only pure thing. That's stupid. Shut up. It's like, add, don't add to God's word. At least he reprove you and you be found a liar. If you elevate yourself and put yourself in a position of pride, what you're doing is you're taking your own position and put yourself in a position where your words are the equivalent to, to God's word. He said, that's stupid. Shut up. And it's something that we need to be cautious and conscious of. When we make a decision to be disobedient, there's, there's this amazing blasphemy and pride that comes from that. What you're saying is, I know better than God. Let me just give you an example. Let's take the easy one. So God says, do not fornicate. That man, woman, marriage, union, that's the only time any of this business need to be going on. You understand that. I know that. But I'm finna do it anyway. What you're saying is, what your words say has no bearing on me. I can decree for myself what is right. And what the collector or the writer here is saying is, that's foolish and you need to shut up. When God gives you a warning about something, you disobey that warning. And you go in it anyway, thinking that it's not going to be what he said it was going to be. What you're saying is, God, I understand this issue in life better than you do. And I got this. And what he's saying is, shut up. Hide your mouth from speaking. And we have to be conscious of these things. That when we're making decisions and when we're living life, we just ain't out here living. And every decision we make is a reflection of our standing and our understanding of our obedience and our acceptions and acceptation and trust of God in his position. When we can walk and live and make our own decisions, disobeying him, we're putting ourselves up there equal to him. And we all understand this on one level, but we never apply it to God. All of us can have them parents or, or somebody or know somebody who parents and told them. When you get to a place where I can't tell you what to do, it's time to do what? Get out of my house. What? Why do the parents say that? 
Because they're giving you a picture. Once you put yourself in a position where you can't listen to me, what you're saying is you equal to me. And you run this. And it can't be but one of us in this house. So you got to leave. Because I have no equal in this house. And that's the same thing when it comes to us. We're saying the same thing to God. Once we can get to the place where we blatantly obey him when we got them, I know the Bible says, but and we can disobey his warnings and expect something other, we're in a dangerous position. What we're saying is, uh, God, I'm saying, I, I know just as much as you do. I'm just as wise as you are. Let me handle this. Let me handle this. And what the writer here is telling us, once you get to that place, shut up. Hide your mouth from speaking. Verse 33 gives us this warning that actually is picked up in James. A lot of people don't recognize it. It says, surely the churning of the milk bringeth forth butter. And the wringing of the nose bringeth forth blood. So the forcing of wrath bringeth forth strife. This is a strange saying. What in the world is he talking about? The way they made butter in early, real early times is they get goat skin. And they have this thing where you get the goat skin and there's this pectin in the goat skin that mixes with the milk and it can turn it into butter. And all they did was you seal it up and put the milk in the goat skin and you shake it. And when you shake it, the pectin in there makes it start to gel. And then once you open it back up, you don't have milk anymore. You have butter. And that's what he means by the churning of the milk. So you get the milk... And you can shake it. He talked about it in his goat skin. You pro- that's how you produce butter. It's like if you get a nose and you wring it, you twist it, you grab and hold on to it and force it, you can make blood come out. And what he's saying is if you want to get strife to come out, force your wrath. So you have a wrath, you have a position, and you force it on people. Like that produces strife. And James picks up on this same thought when he talks to us, warns us, and he said, the wrath of man does not work the will of God. And basically all it is, if, if you find to force yourself and using your, ang- your anger, your, your frustration to produce godliness, you won't do it. You produce an undesired thing. Just imagine that if you live back in the days and you didn't understand this. And I'm saying you went on a long journey and you had your little goat skin bag. I'm saying you met somebody and they got some good goat milk. Like, oh man, you got the good milk. And you drank it like, man, I'm going to take this something back to my family. Like, we need some of this milk. Like, can I get some of the milk? And they fill your little ball up with the milk. And you get back on your horse or your donkey and you ride. And the whole little time, your little thing back there shaking up. And it's getting, it's getting rocked. Then you get home like, baby, take some of this milk. And the clunk start to falling out. Like, hold on, that ain't what I was trying to do. <laughs> And that's the picture. If you got your wrath and, and you using your anger to force it and to get things going, strife is what you're going to get. It's like that ain't what I'm, I'm trying to do. And that's a warning that he has here. That when we use force, when we use anger and frustration to exert our will, what you get is fight. Now think about that for us parents. As we pause right there. <laughs> Anybody got any questions? 